Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 99, Revelation 12, verses 8 through 9. In our last podcast, we explored the image of the child who rules and is raptured to the heavenlies. In addition, we studied the meaning of 1,260 days and the great escape of the woman into the wilderness of the Gentiles where she was cared for until she was miraculously returned to her land after 2,000 years. We closed with dismantling the fiction that God cannot be in the presence of evil. After all, Satan and his angels have their dominion in the heavens. The Satanic Hosts Evicted from the Heavens, Revelation 12, 8-9 And there was cause to no longer be a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was caused to be thrown out the serpent of old, who is now caused to being called the devil and Satan, and who is now deceiving, causing to roam astray, the whole world. He was caused to be thrown to the earth, and his angels were caused to be thrown with them. Wow. The implication of this passage is staggering on many levels, and the impact on humanity is profound and cataclysmic. Since there was cause to no longer be a place found for them in heaven, it becomes clear that Satan and his hosts of angels will no longer have access to the great assembly of God. They will no longer participate in God's heavenly council meetings discussing the affairs of humanity. They will find themselves out of the, quote, inner circle and out of the know. They'll no longer be apprised of what God has planned and what he's working out in the heavenly and the earthly realms. They will be exiled to earth and, like all of humanity, only have access to information that can be ascertained within the context of time and dimensional space, a view that is restricted to the earth. He was caused to be thrown to the earth, and his angels were caused to be thrown with him. Beyond not having access to the heavenly realm where God's counsel gathers, when ejected from the heavens, when there was cause to no longer be a place found for them in heaven, they will no longer have a cosmic view of events. This is an important development and a real blow to the spiritual forces because based on the level of glory and authority, certain angels, it seems, have done their deeds from an overarching global or cosmic perspective from the heavens, quite unlike the nasty demons that roam the earth and haunt people and places. By way of example, Colossians 1.16 mentions the existence of thrones and dominions in the unseen spiritual realms. Dominions are demonic spirits that have mastery over various human behaviors, and this mastery tends to be the same no matter where one travels on the earth. The commonality and expression violates all notions of statistical randomness that would otherwise we would expect to see, and it evidences a common scheme or plan that is implemented on a global basis. And this becomes more than evident when you hear people talk about things that dominate their lives, and they use the same words and phrases as if someone had clued them as to what to say. Instances of this type of mastery or dominion 
would include such things as eating disorders, substance addictions, drugs, alcohol, sexual distortions or deviations, violent outbursts, and basically anything that has ruled over the souls of mankind and have kept them in bondage. Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 states, For we do not now exist against flesh and blood, but against the principalities or chiefs, against the authorities, against the cosmic rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. Thus, combined with Colossians 1.16, the Spirit gives us six, which according to the code is the number of man, types of demonic beings which operate in the heavenly places and exercise rule over mankind. Thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, cosmic rulers, spiritual wickedness. Unfortunately, the Spirit does not give us much more than these broad categories of demons, so we can only make assumptions as to how they differ in their glory, authority, and responsibility. But what is clear is that these angels do their dirty work from the heavenly realms and the cosmos, and it is from these unseen realms that they have ruled over mankind. However, once they are violently thrown down and relegated to the earth, their entire operation must change and their strategy for warfare must significantly adapt because they will suddenly be trapped in the earthly realms with the dimensional limitations which control all those who dwell on the earth. Though they will have their wings clipped, so to speak, we must not in any way discount their abilities. They are still the glorious ones, and it is likely they have prepared for this inevitable occurrence since this was prophesied so long ago. And this is one of those prophecies that would be hard even for the devil to misconstrue. And there was caused to no longer be a place found for them in heaven. What is the timing? And there was caused to no longer be a place and was caused to be thrown out are both rendered in the aorist passive indicative. This would indicate that it has been done. The aorist used with the indicative indicates a past action. And God is the one who did it, the passive voice. There are obvious questions that should be running through our minds. Has this really happened already? If so, when? If not, why did the Spirit use a verb form indicating a past action? And when will it happen? And how will we know for sure? The end-to-end view. Let's return to what we assessed at the beginning of this chapter to ensure we have the proper framework for answering this question about when. It's as if the events associated with the seventh trumpet, the storyline is put on pause as the spirit wants us to see a bigger picture, an end-to-end view of certain events. Hence, this chapter is layered in time. It is multidimensional, does not follow a sequence of end times events. The spirit first gives us a glimpse of the woman, Israel, And then he takes us back to a time before the garden when Satan caused one-third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion to Yahweh. Then the Spirit returns to the woman Israel and provides us glimpses of events associated with the promised Messiah. Next, the Spirit jumps us forward to the time when Jesus was born. He does this quick drive-by and touches on Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, as well as the woman's relationship or interactions with the dragon. Then he again jumps us to the time when the devil and his hosts of demons are cast out of the heavenlies and relegated to the earthly realms. And finally, to the time when the dragon wages war against the two witnesses, which recaps a central point in Revelation 11. It's a lot, and the pieces are stacked upon one another, thus communicating events from the literal start of creation, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens, including those unseen realms. This chapter is focused primarily on the devil, the dragon, Satan, and his contempt for Jesus and for all those who follow Jesus. It also reveals his hatred for the woman and the people of the nation that produced the Messiah. But again, we are given an end-to-end view of certain events from the perspective of the heavenlies, from God's perspective that is not constrained by time. Hence, we are showing what has been, which from our view within the constraints of time, includes what will be. With that said, the Spirit did give us some indicators to tie us to discernible events, so we can somewhat place this event specifically when the war in the heavens occurs along the timeline of the Revelation narrative. The perfect confirmation, Satan cast out. Before we get to those indicators, let's examine the two other places in which the Codex describes this same event. One instance is found in the Old Testament, and the other is found in the New Testament, for a total of three declarations that Satan or the devil and his angels get thrown down to earth. And with the number three being code for perfection, this is a perfect promise whose fulfillment is guaranteed. The Old Testament, Satan cast out. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah where the spirit layers a prophecy about the king of Babylon with a prophecy about the devil. The spirit tends to do this a lot where he addresses a human imager, which is used as a placeholder or an avatar, when in fact he is addressing the spirit behind that person. Textual tidbits. With that said, before we look at the relevant portions of Isaiah 14, there are a couple of anecdotes that derive from this chapter, which are quite fascinating and applicable to our study. So we will quickly address them. Have you ever wondered why there are so many names ascribed to the adversary? He is known as the dragon, the devil, the Satan, the Leviathan, the serpent, the twisted serpent, the prince of the authority of the air, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the evil one, and Lucifer. Well, except for Lucifer, the rest of these monikers are not proper names. Rather, they are descriptions of certain traits or characteristics of the adversary. He has only one name, and it has been translated from the Hebrew as Lucifer, a Latin word meaning to shine. And this Latin rendition of his name has stuck throughout the ages. Roman folklore ascribed the name Lucifer to the planet Venus as the evil one who is often presented in ancient poetry as heralding the dawn. Accordingly, the original Hebrew, Hillel, can be translated into English as shining one or morning star. This name shining one, in effect, describes his original purpose, how God created him as a bearer of light, as a firm promise of a new day. And today we know that even Satan now chooses to transfigure himself as an angel of light, as do his servants. They now choose to transfigure themselves as servants of righteousness. Next, similar to the way Job 40 and 41 gave us a description of Lucifer and the beast through the imagers of the creatures Leviathan and Behemoth, in Isaiah 14, the Spirit also provides us a view of both the devil, imaged through the king of Babylon, and the beast, imaged through the one who is called the Assyrian. Both the king of Babylon and the Assyrian are human avatars for Lucifer and the beast, respectively. Unfortunately, most, if not all your translations, will translate the Assyrian as the Assyrians, as a plural collective of people. But it is rendered in the Hebrew as a singular noun, a proper name, actually. So if you go and study this chapter, when you read the Assyrians, scratch that, 
and write in the Assyrian. This use of the proper name as an imager for the beast is used in many other places in the Codex as well. Perhaps this is a clue that the man we call the Antichrist, an imager for the beast, will be known as the Assyrian, as a man whose homeland is from ancient Assyria, a territory that covers from Babylon in Iraq through modern-day Syria. In fact, the Spirit told us that one day, with regard to Israel and Ephraim, the Assyrian will be their king because they refuse to return to Yahweh. Jesus made a side reference to this when he said, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? This is also a reference to that worthless shepherd to whom they will submit and to whom they will follow. Then in the book of Hosea, we are told that Ephraim will make a covenant with the Assyrian. This is likely a reference to the famed peace treaty or the alliance mentioned in Daniel, the means by which those in the temple at large agree to subjugate for 42 months or three and a half years those who are now worshiping in the sanctuary. In this verse in Hosea 8, the Spirit also says something quite odd and seemingly out of the blue. He says that at that time, oil is carried to Egypt. Perhaps this is a reason why Daniel tells us that this king of the north, the Assyrian, goes to war against Egypt. Perhaps he wants the oil. In that light, it should not surprise us that in recent years, Israel has discovered vast resources of both oil and gas, primarily gas, off its shores and on its northernmost border with Lebanon. Before we move on, it is important to note that the Spirit also speaks with hope towards Israel. Also in Hosea, he confirms that all is not lost, for some of those of Israel will return to Yahweh their God, perhaps those who make up the candlestick of the Jews. They will declare that despite the covenant they made with the Assyrian, Assyria will not save them, and no longer will they say to the work of their hands, this is our God. A remnant will come to realize that from him, from Yahweh, comes their fruit. Okay. So now that we touched on those interesting tidbits, let's go back to our question. Has Satan already been thrust down to the earth? Utilizing the imager of the king of Babylon or in Revelation nomenclature, which we'll get to in Revelation 13, 17, and 18, the king of the woman who rides the beast, the king over the apostate religions of the world, including the religion of Christianity, the spirit reveals the following. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, shining one, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. The use of the Hebrew declaring how you have fallen from heaven is in the call perfect. We've not dealt with much of this use of the Hebrew language as it is quite different from the Greek. But the Hebrew perfect is referred to as the external viewpoint. With this tense, the author portrays the action as if the reader were standing back, external to the event, able to see the beginning and ending of the action. 
In effect, it's a summary view. In other words, when it's all said and done, the shining one has fallen from heaven. This does not mean that in the scope of linear time that he has already been thrust to the earth, but that from the perspective of God, it is the outcome that is portrayed, for it has been determined. By the way, with all the I will statements in this passage, we get a feel for the lies which the shining one has told all the angels who followed him, all those who now must face the same fate as the devil and be caused to be thrown to the earth. Lucifer may claim, I will, but Yahweh scoffs in derision and just says, I am. As a way to highlight this summary external viewpoint, capturing the entire picture, the last line of the passage, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit, will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming. Revelation 20, 1 through 3 states that immediately after Jesus' second coming, for 1,000 years, the devil will be interned in the recesses of Sheol, in the depths of the abyss, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a 1,000 years were completed. This event, Satan's 1,000-year internment in the abyss, is fixed in the end times timeline. Thus, we can be confident that this external viewpoint is showing us events that have been determined and from the view outside of time, have been. The New Testament, Satan cast out. There is a passage in the New Testament that has caused many to think that Satan and his demonic hordes might have already been relegated to the earthly realms. Luke chapter 10, 17 through 20. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are now caused to be subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I beheld the Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to now tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing may injure you. Nevertheless, you are commanded to not now rejoice in this, that the spirits are now caused to be subject to you, but rejoice that your names have been caused to be recorded in heaven. The background to this passage is that Jesus' disciples were sent out on a missionary journey to spread the good news, and in so doing to exercise authority over the power and dominance of the enemy. The question we must ask is how we are to understand the statement, I beheld the Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Is Jesus referring to an event that was happening while his disciples were on their missionary journey? Or is he providing for us an external viewpoint, a summary look at events, a heavenly view foreshadowing the inevitable outcome of that which has been determined? The simple to explain the confusing. There's an old axiom that is used for interpretation of text. And that is that you use what is simple to understand, to shed light upon, or to help interpret what is otherwise very difficult to understand and not the other way around. For example, years later, when the Spirit wrote through the Apostle Paul, utilizing the present tense, said in Ephesians 6, 12 through 13, for we do not now wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the authorities, against the cosmic rulers of the darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, if the devil and his angels had already been cast down to earth, our battle would now be against demonic forces in earthly realms, not in the heavenly places. And the demonic encounters that we would face would be very different. In addition, again, speaking through Paul, the spirit explained the mystery of the church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles gathered together by grace, and he revealed the spiritual purpose of this mystery, 
He said, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, plan A, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Once again, we see that these unseen rulers and authorities are not yet relegated to the earthly realms, but they still reside in the heavenly places. Therefore, using the simple to explain the difficult, we can safely conclude that Jesus was not giving us a report of what happened when his disciples were on their missionary journey. Rather, he was providing us an external viewpoint, a summary look at events, a heavenly view foreshadowing the inevitable outcome of events that have been determined. In a very similar manner, when Jesus was talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, he told them that the prince of this world, the devil, has been caused to be judged. In so doing, he utilized the perfect passive indicative, a past event whose effect still resonates throughout time. Once again, Jesus was providing us an external viewpoint, a summary view of events, a heavenly view foreshadowing the inevitable outcome of events that have been determined. After all, we know from the end times timeline that the prince of this world does not get judged until after Satan's 1,000-year atonement in the abyss. Spirit explains that after he is released, he will once again incite rebellion to God. This time, however, not only is he defeated, but he is also judged and thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented for all eternity. Besides, when this event does happen, when the dragon does get kicked out of the heavenly realms, we get this terrifying warning in Revelation 12, 12, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Things may seem tough on this earth, but it's going to get bad, really bad, when the dragon and his angels are thrust down to the earth, knowing their time is short. So, when will it happen? Based on subsequent verses, Revelation 12, 10 through 12 and 17, it becomes apparent that this war, which results in Satan being cast out of the heavens to the earth, occurs before the actual blowing of the seventh trumpet, before the rapture, but within the same three-and-a-half-month period that overlaps the two three-and-a-half periods of the tribulation. The relevant details which ties these events together are the references to those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, the brethren. We will get to those details, but first, let's look at how the adversary is depicted. The deceiver. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was caused to be thrown down, the serpent of old, who is now caused to being called the devil and Satan, who is now deceiving, causing to roam astray the whole world. He was caused to be thrown down to the earth and his angels were caused to be thrown with him. In terms of the great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, the spirit directly connects the dots for us just in case there is any confusion. And there usually is. The Spirit is clearly communicating that they are all the same angelic being. And regardless of the various images and titles used to communicate his character and nature, we can always be sure that he is now deceiving the whole world. He is now causing everyone without exception to roam astray in one way or another. The deceiver's work is to provide to humanity at large 
and very specifically to those who are in the household of God, not so much anti-faith, but a substitute faith, an acceptable way and means to trust anything and anyone other than Yahweh. This deceiver does not necessarily need humanity to bow before him. He just needs them to not bow before Yahweh. For in so doing, he maintains a firm grip on their lives, upon this world, and on their eternal fate. Ironically, those who do not bow before Yahweh are beholden to him, the devil, as their God, whether they realize it or not. The deceiver's real art, however, is number one, to get those in the household of God, and specifically the priests who are authorized to minister in the sanctuary, to be so busy about the work of God, the work of their hands, that they end up worshiping another Jesus. And two, to get them to use the scripture to support this blasphemous worship. This deceiver has encouraged us to invent a Jesus who died for the sins of the world, who saves by grace through faith, yet at the same time holds his people accountable for their sins, for their not being holy as he and his heavenly father are holy. This Jesus requires all manner of personal and spiritual discipline so that sin will not rule over our lives. After all, his followers must present a good witness to the world. But since sin is the problem limiting our effectiveness as a Christian and our intimacy with God, there's always repentance and penance, such that if we get right with God, then all can be good again, as long as no one else finds out about our sin, and more importantly, we might still be blessed by God. This Jesus is worshipped as Lord, though few know him and trust him as their Lord God Almighty, who is in control of every single detail of their lives. And many great works are done in his name, in the name of this Jesus. But as Jesus warned, he does not know them, for they practice lawlessness. Still, the deceiver encourages all believers to fashion Jesus and mold him and shape him into our own image and to the God that we want, a Jesus we can understand. In practice, this tends to be a Jesus who has clear rules that have followed, will give us what we want, and more importantly, when we want it. So we take Jesus and hammer on some of this, nail on some of that, and then glue on the right finishing touches so our Jesus looks the way we want him to look and does what we want him to do. We create what amounts to an if-then God. If we do this, then God will do what we want him to do. If we are faithful, then God will. If we are holy and righteous, then God will. If we serve, then God will. If we give, then God will. If we give generously, then God will. If we pray harder, longer, more often, and of course fast, then God will. If we read our Bibles and have daily quiet times, then God will. If we worship, then God will. If we repent from our sin, then God will. If we are active in our fight against sin, then God will. This form of it-then idolatry penetrates almost every aspect of the religion of Christianity. The deceiver has been a very busy bee, causing the whole world to roam astray. Yet the truth is that our God does not behave according to our requirements or standards, and he is not controlled by our behavior. In fact, the outcomes of our lives are not dependent upon our doing something right or wrong, upon our sinning or not sinning. Rather, he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. 
What he does is not dependent upon man who acts, but upon God who wills. For our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Given that truth, the deceiver tends to have a lot of success with believers because it seems that we far too often forget that the Father's goal for our lives, that we become an imager of his son, Jesus, and be partakers of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection unto life, where we continually live in his unrestrained freedom. And the reason we tend to forget the Father's goal is that we become an imager of the Son is because it requires a transformation that only he can do if we are willing to let him. In contrast, the false Jesus of the religion of Christianity in ways both subtle and blatant attempts to put this transformation on our backs and on our effort. Not entirely, of course, but definitely to some degree. After all, we must be holy. But that is one of the deceiver's tricks. The deceiver always interjects a bit of self-effort into every aspect of our relationship with God that is intended to be entirely by grace through faith, by what he does when we are now believing. And in his wisdom, the tools that God most often uses are terrible. (laughs) They're hard, traumatic, and very painful but they are what is needed to help us identify and ultimately reject our false Jesus, which is the first step in our transformation. Sadly, far too many do not like this process, and so they fail to become imagers of the Son, and instead, they become imagers of the Jesus they have created. Remember, everything with our God comes down to belief and not to behavior. Therefore, he must teach us why we need to trust him like a little child for all things all the time, which usually involves showing us how terrible it is to trust in ourselves and in our false Jesus. Then for those who are still willing, he must show us how to trust him like that little child. And from our journey through Revelation so far, it should be obvious how ripe this process is for the deceiver to tempt us to follow the Jesus of the religion of Christianity, the Jesus of our own creation. Well, that was heavy. So let's stop here and hopefully you'll spend some time considering how this deceiver might have slipped into your belief system, ideas, and practices that stand in opposition to everything being by grace through faith. For all things that come from God are experienced by grace through faith and not a result of work so that no man may boast of the work of their hands. I'm glad you tuned in and have been ready to listen. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.